patiently and lovingly, he has answers and answers and answers and answers. And John loves it. He knows all the Old Testament scriptures. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the Old Testament was translated into the Greek language by 70 Jewish rabbis or teachers. That's why they call it the Septuagint. John knows the Septuagint backwards and forwards, and he's probably read also the Old Testament in Hebrew. And he is familiar with the Gospels by the Apostle Matthew. He's familiar with the Gospel by Mark, whom he knows was with Paul and was mentored by Peter. He knows the Gospel by Luke. He understands and knows all about Luke, who traveled Paul was a physician and his constant companion. And actually, John knows all these people. He knows them personally. He is unique. But primarily, John's uniqueness comes because he knows Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's role in our lives and in John's life, as Jesus told us, is to remind John which the Holy Spirit does, of the teachings of Jesus. And John has complete clarity and remembers with complete accuracy everything of significance that Jesus said. And John loves to answer these questions. But the Spirit knows that in a few years, not too long from when he is writing, Persecution is going to send John away from his flock to Patmos. He's going to be exiled. And so the Spirit says to John, you have the answers to their questions. Write it down. Write it down so when you're in Patmos, they'll know the answers. And write it down so we're, when we're sitting in 2023, right? 2023. In Knoxville, Tennessee, at Cedar Springs Chapel, we will have the answers. So, this is what John wrote. This is how he started. In the beginning, look at, look at your whatever Bible or Apostle. In the beginning, John says, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Stop there. Now, I live in Knoxville. I've been here since 
pulled out my stack of notebook paper with the blue ink handwritten poems on it. And then I looked around at everyone else's stack on the table and they had all photocopies. <laughs> and I thought, oh, you can copy things. <laughs> they looked at my stack and they looked under the table to see if I was wearing shoes. <laughs> And I thought, you Billy. And then when Thanksgiving came, and I was so homesick, I wasn't supposed to go home because we didn't, I didn't have a car, we didn't have the money, my dad couldn't stand it, and so he sent me a plane ticket, and I had never been on a commercial airplane. I had a friend who had a car, and for some reason, two other girls on my freshman hall went with us to the airport, and we get to the airport, and it's not that big, and we're standing in the back, and I'm getting on, when we get on this puddle jumper, and, when they drop the stairs, they say, flight such and such to Bluefield, West Virginia, and over the intercom comes the song, Country Roads, my job. <laughs> <laughs> and I wish I could sing. I've been, I didn't even sing today because I was afraid it would come across. But um, Country Roads, take me home to the place I belong. Mountain Mama, take me home. Country Roads. And so I am shocked they all burst into song. And I start weeping and crying. And crying and crying. I get on the plane, I think I cried all the way through it. It was so sad. And you know what? I was triggered. I was just triggered. And I thought, my kitchen, my bedroom, those trucks gearing down, coming down the mountain at night, all these things. My mom, my dad, my friends. I was completely triggered, and that's what John is doing here. When you're triggered, you get emotional, you think of your childhood. You, it's a communal thing, and it's a personal thing. And I mean, country roads in West Virginia, everybody in my family, we play it at weddings, and we play it at funerals. <laughs> and we all leave. We're triggered, and that's what John is doing we don't realize it. John starts right off the bat with these words in the beginning. And his hearers start reciting, maybe out loud, but certainly in their hearts, they are reciting, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And John says, cut and paste what I am now going to tell you into what you have been reciting. What has triggered your memories, what has triggered your heart. John wants their hearts to well up for this incredible revelation that he's going to give them. And he says, cut and paste to what you are reciting these words, in the beginning, was the Word. Now, actually, since John's speaking Greek, and they're listening to Greek, what he says is, in the beginning was the Logos, L-O-G-O-S. And he says this because this is a word that everyone's familiar about. Like, you would expect him to give us a little help here, tell us what the Logos is, what in English, the word is, but he doesn't need to. 
because everyone who's listening to him knows the logos culturally has been talked about in Greek philosophy forever. Thank goodness we don't have to do that. But for them culturally, this is what the logos means. It means reason or purpose or ultimate reality or truth. It represents established philosophical concepts of the active, rational, spiritual principle permeating all reality in the universe. And for them, this is like sand on the beach. They know this. But theologically, the Logos also has a deeper meaning, which they are all familiar with. Logos in the Septuagint, the Old Testament Greek translation, is in that Old Testament 938 times. If you know the Greek Old Testament like John does and like most of his hearers do, you are familiar with Logos. Logos means, well, let me just give you an example. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses said, they, oh man, the people who were here last year were like, yes! Deuteronomy, let's go. Okay, in Deuteronomy, Moses gives the people the law, and then Moses records what happens. He says, after Moses, after I, made an end of speaking all these words to all Israel, and he said unto them, set your heart unto all the logos, which I testify unto you this day, which you shall command your children to observe, to do. Even all the words of this law, for it is no vain logos to you, because it is your life. And through this logos, you shall prolong your days in the land. So when John says, you are reciting in the beginning God created, I tell you, in the beginning, the logos. And they kind of drop their jaws. John has triggered them, and he wants to do that. Who is the Logos? And John tells them in two sentences here. The Logos, in English, the Word, was with God. Now, he doesn't mean, and the Greek word he uses here, isn't like, I'm with y'all today, or like, you people are together. He means with, in the sense that the Logos and God are in a loving embrace. It's more like being with a husband and a wife, being with each other on their wedding, or a mother and a child being together while the mother's nursing. It's a loving embrace that is so close, it almost looks inseparable. And so the Logos was with God in this way. Then he even goes further and he says the Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Logos is a person, not a thing. The Logos is a person who is with God in a loving, inseparable embrace. And the nature of the Logos and the nature of God are Logos is God. No one has ever revealed God in this way. No one 
in Scripture, and John says it for us. Now let's look at John 1, 3. Look down. <clears throat> through him all things were made, through the locusts. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now don't just snooze on this. Because they have been reciting God created. And John is telling them God created the heavens and the earth through the logos. He's the agent of creation. He is the means of creation. Um, I was blown away, some of you know, in 2022, in the summer, I became obsessed about the photos from the John Webb telescope, space telescope. And one of those that I couldn't get enough of, and someone actually made it look for me because they knew how obsessed I was. Um, one of those photos was called the Cosmic Cliffs. Maybe some of y'all are familiar with it. The Cosmic Cliffs are described as a unified shape of gas and dust 24 trillion miles tall. And the scientists said, we know that's always existed, we just had to build a telescope to go see it. And John the Apostle says that those cosmic cliffs, they were made through the logos. And I also subscribed to an online science newsletter. <coughs> Happy to hook you up with that. Um, and I have an insider tip. Cosmologists have nothing to do with Botox or hair. <laughs> Cosmologists are people, scientists, who do this amazing work where they use computers and they are um, determining and doing simulations of how the universe was created. And I just read about this last week. They admit it's not working. There isn't a computer in the universe with enough power to do simulations about the universe because the universe is so complex. The energies, the forces, the um, things that are in it, it's so complex. And what's most interesting to me is it's so unpredictable. You cannot predict. You can't start your simulation by mathematics because even the orbit of the Earth around the sun which is like, nothing to these guys and women. Um, it's going to soon get skewed because the Earth is all orbit is affected by the gravitational oh, no, pulse of the other planets. So, um, but what this once cosmologist said is we're learning that the universe is not so much like a machine, it's like an animal. Like we know something about it, it's unpredictable. And what the Apostle John says, that's because the universe wasn't created by mathematics. The universe was created by a person. The Word. The Logos. That is me. Can you hear my heartbeat? Okay. So, let's read on in verse 4 and verse 5. In the Logos, in the Word was life. That life was the light of men. The light shines 
the word meals forms the man out of the dust of the ground and breathes into the man, male and female, as we're told initially in Genesis, and breathes in his own life. And the man then is made in his image. The image of the Logos is in man because the life of the Logos is man. And John says, in the Logos, that life, which is now in man, is the light. It is divine light. And this divine light has been brought into the pre-existing darkness. Moses wrote about the pre-existing darkness before creation, and John says there was a pre-existing darkness. And if that light from the Logos was not created and then put into man, that life causes light in the darkness. And there is nothing, once that light is released into the universe and into people, there's nothing that the darkness can do to extinguish it. And when John uses Greek words here, he's talking about utter darkness. He is talking about what it is like if a person in the womb would say, how's it looking in there? The person in the womb, if they could speak, would say, utter darkness. And until the light from the locust comes into the world, that darkness exists. But once the light comes, there's nothing the darkness can do to overcome. Let's read now a longer passage. We're going to start in 6, and we're going to read all the way to the end of 13. Well, no, we'll stop. No, we we'll stop. Uh, uh, 9. I don't know. We'll see. Um, there came a man who was sent from, John, from God, and his name is John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man is coming into the world. I would stop there and just mention John the Baptist is brought into this. It may seem like sort of a disruption, but it's important. Jewish law required two witnesses to establish a fact. And the Apostle John is saying, this isn't just me talking. John the Baptist and I agree. And he was the messenger sent. And there are all these Old Testament verses which you all um, have in your homework um, predicting John's arrival that he was the messenger. The true light though, that gives the light of God was coming. John adds to the Baptist adds to the Apostle John's testimony. Okay, read on. This is about the Logos, the Word. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a husband's decision, but a hus or a husband's will, but born of God. The Apostle John says the word, the Logos, 
was in the world. And there's some kind of, um, ambiguity here because we don't know when this is. Uh, some you may notice in your study this amazing Presbyterian uh, commentator, theologian named B.F. Westcott. He says that these passages can be read and should be read as indicating the time between the creation in the beginning and the incarnation. That blows my mind, and that changes how I read the Old Testament scriptures. Because what he's saying here is, which makes really a lot of sense when you meditate on it, the Logos was God, and the Logos created the universe, and he never left it. He was always in he was always in the world. He was always in mankind. He was always pursuing and loving and holding all things together. And so when you read this, you need to be thinking about what you've read about what God, the Logos, was doing in the world before the Incarnation. And this is um, really not surprising when you think about the Old Testament people of God. Of course many of them rejected him. They didn't recognize him. Uh, we read a lot about the stubbornness and the rebellion and the darkness last year. But the book of or the Old Testament books are full of people and their stories, and I'm sure a lot of stories that are included in the scriptures. Um, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God says to Moses, you have found grace in myself. Abraham, Hagar, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Joshua, David, Rahab, Ruth. All these people, how are they children of God? By grace. By grace, by the authority of the Logos, they have become children of God. And if, you, if, you're, if this is hard to understand, one of the best places to help you is um, Paul finds this as imperative to explain when he does it in Romans. How Abraham was not saved because he had obeyed the law. He was saved because he believed God's promises, and that was credited to him by the grace of God. As righteousness. So when we read this, we realize the Logos never left. And the Logos, the Word, has been saving by grace from the beginning. <coughs> but now we get the shocking, incredible explanation. The Word, look at verse 14. The Word became flesh. And the word here that, um, that John uses, I'm going to use because I love it. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, I have seen the Logos. I have seen the Lord face to face. 
the eternal world, word chose to come into a chronological history as a human being. His loving embrace with God, his complete identity as God was not changed one iota. But now he's taken on flesh. Now this actually sounds kind of crude, taking on flesh. Could have said it probably a little more delicately, but John wants to say, think about this, this hidden flesh. How does flesh become? It's in a person, it's in a woman, it's embryonic, it's microscopic, it's in the dark, it's DNA, it's cellular, it's almost unimaginable, and the, the one who created that process has now entered in and become flesh through that process. The incomprehensible universe created by the Logos, the Logos has now said, I'm going to inhabit it and tabernacle with my people. And tabernacle, you want to trigger people who know the Old Testament, say that the Logos because the tabernacle was designed by God I mean, when the Israelites were in the desert and that was the place that once they followed his minute instructions and finished it, Yahweh came down and inhabited the tabernacle and it was filled with his glory. And John says, in that same way, the word has become flesh we have seen his glory. Let's look at this from the perspective of the Lord, who was even in the desert, in a place where he could come and be with his people. He was separated from them. No one could go in to the tabernacle. They saw his glory. The word has become flesh, and the word is ecstatic. Ah. Person who created them, I am with them. I'm looking at them face to face. I'm talking to them. I'm hugging them. I'm eating with them. I'm laughing with them. I'm partying with them. I'm going to their weddings. I'm going, I am with them. I'm talking to them. I'm listening to them and asking them questions and answering their questions. And so this is the divine dream come true. It is. Best case scenario since the creation of mankind. The Word is now tabernacle, face to face, in flesh, with the people He created and loves so much. And as in the Old Testament, as He is with His people, John says, we see His glory. We see it. We see it in a new way. It's the glory revealed and he says here from the fullness of his grace we have received one blessing after another for the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ aha so now John has the big reveal this is the glory it is full of grace and truth it is blessing us 
is revealing God to us in a new way. Now notice here, and I think this is important, he doesn't put a connector between Moses bringing the revelation of God's nature through the law and Jesus Christ bringing the revelation of God through his human life. Because God's revelation is never replaced, it's never reduced, it is not an either or, it is done by him at the appointed time in eternity. And so he's not saying here, in fact, Jesus said, I didn't come to replace the law, I came to fulfill it. But just as we learned about God's nature through the law, now we have learned and truth. And now John tells us in verse 17 that logos, that glory, grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. And I just want to acknowledge that maybe some of you, when you're reading these first 16 and a half verses, are thinking, okay, quit saying the word. I know who this is. This is Jesus. Getting a little tired of this, Apostle John. Like, you know, like, it's not the word, it's Jesus. Like, it's Jesus doing the cosmic place, just saying it. And so we're kind of, but, I mean, it reminded me of this friend of my son's when the Titanic movie came out. We were all going to go, and he said, Why would you go? You know the end. <laughs> and, you know, and so, but here's what I think is happening, and I think this is significant. John is revealing Jesus in the history of the, of the revelation of God. Because when the world was created, no one knew it was Jesus. Until Mary, it's a visit from an angel named Gabriel. The world doesn't know the name of Jesus. And in fact, until Jesus is crucified and resurrected, the world doesn't know for sure it's Jesus Christ. And so I think John is communicating here with his hearers and with us. We need to live in the revelation of who he is as he is and not jump ahead and think about and meditate on him in the Old Testament scriptures and Moses's revelations in the Torah, especially in Genesis. So that is John's purpose here, not to frustrate you, but to challenge your thinking. So John says, in conclusion in these passages, no human has ever seen God, but the one and only, he who always existed in the intimate embrace of God the Father, Look what he says. God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. There in verse 18. For the first time, we have the word to use the identity of who was with Jesus in that loving embrace. In fact, it is the Father. And in John's Gospel, you're going to read about the Father, and the Father and the Son, and you're going to read intimate, identical relationship. And you're not going to understand it because I don't understand it, but it is foundational for who Jesus is. The 
Father. He's at the Father's side. Jesus has made God known. Okay, couple of kind of cleanup things here, and since I'm an amateur, I can go over the Why do we trust John? Why are you going to believe what he tells you now? I told you some reasons why. But I want you to also think about this. You're going to read about a conversation that Jesus has privately with this woman at the well in Samaria. Well, the next two days, Jesus and John and the other disciples spend time with her in her village. When John tells you what she and Jesus talked about, John is telling you what Jesus and she told John. And when you read this private, in the dark of the night conversation about with Nicodemus and Jesus, Nicodemus becomes a believer. He and John are in church together in Jerusalem. He and John talk, can talk about this. John knows these people. He's writing about what he has been told. And when John tells us that the word was in the Old Testament, he remembers the day of the resurrection itself. There were two disciples who were walking to Emmaus, and Jesus came and walked with them and told them that Christ had to die. Don't you know that? And then he started with Moses and explained to them who he is during all the Old Testament. And those disciples came back, and they told John, and the Holy Spirit said, you're going to remember this guy because you are going to reveal who Jesus is. So all of these um, things that we're going to read, John has a first-hand account of. The other thing that John does, of course, is what Jesus said. And what Stephanie um, has talked about in the last two weeks, the thing that John is perhaps most known for is his um, proclamations that Jesus made. And if you can imagine Jesus' excitement, don't read, I am the light of the world. Don't read it that way. This is, I am the light of the world. And you know what's really going on here? When Moses was visited by God in a burning bush, and Moses said to, to the Lord, I don't, first he said, I don't want to go, don't send me, blah, blah, blah. And then he said, okay, I'm going. Who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. I am that I am sent you. Now that has always really bugged me because I'm an English major and I'm a grammar nerd. And I've never liked that because it's a fragment. <laughs> okay? So, I mean, you can say I am means I exist. That's not much information. But what I realized is this is a teaser. And Jesus is saying this because he is going to come in the flesh and he's going to complete that sentence and he's going to be ecstatic to reveal who he is. I'm the light of the world. I'm the true vine. I'm the good shepherd. On and on and studied that last summer. But what's really interesting too is every one of those phrases is taken from the Old Testament. So again, John, in his gospel, is going to be triggering his hearers and should be triggering us to see 
final point, actually there are two. Anyway, the final point is that Jesus also said things that gave you a hint about his expectations after he ascended to the Father and after Pentecost. Because he said, I am the light of the world, and then he said, you are the light of the world. And then they said, feed these people, Jesus, and he said, you give them something to eat. And he said to Peter, feed my sheep. So what does this mean? This means that now we are all these things in the world through the body of Christ. You are the light of the world. You are connected to the true vine. You are expected to feed a sheep. You are expected to, when the poor are hungry, care for them. We are because he is. When he says, I am, we need to be thinking, I am. You are. And completing that sentence as he calls us to complete it. Now, don't miss that. I didn't just make that up. Because John actually says in this, this Bible, um, he says, if you ask John the Apostle, what happened when you tabernacled with the Word? What, what happened? He would say, oh, from the fullness of his grace, we received one blessing after another. We all received one blessing after another. So this means you don't need to be overwhelmed. I don't want to be the light of the world and the shepherd and the this and the this. I can't do that. But he said, no, no, no. You're going to get one blessing. And then after that, you're going to get another blessing. And each of those blessings is going to change you and equip you and prepare you to be the next part of me that you're, I'm going to call you to be. So you're going to receive blessing from his grace. And you're going to be changed, and you are going to be the light of who he is, the divine light in the darkness. The other thing that I understand from this is, the truth is, because we get grace, but we also get truth. The truth is, there will always be darkness in you. There will always be darkness in you. But now, after Pentecost, we have the Lord. We are having tabernacling in us. And that light, there's no darkness in us that can extinguish that light. To conclude, this is actually called a prologue. The prologue to John's Gospel. John didn't really call it that. He also didn't put these little numbers in. But a prologue is not like a movie trailer. The purpose of a prologue is not to tell you what's coming. It's to give you insight into what happened Previously in time, so that when you read this story, and I mean people write prologues not so much things. When you read this story, you're going to understand the characters. You're going to understand why they're doing what they're doing. You're going to understand the plot better. You have to understand the prologue, and that's why the author is giving it to you. And I have read that we should read the Gospel of John by reading the prologue, these 18 verses, before we read each chapter. And I would recommend that. But what I really think is happening is John is writing the prologue for all of Scripture. I think he is saying, you need to read these 18 verses before you read Genesis 1. And before you read about the tabernacle. 
before you read about all the Old Testament stories. This is the prologue for all of Scripture. And we need to cut and paste it in our Bibles because it tells us who God is going to reveal himself to be. Because at that time in history, when John wrote, that revelation wasn't available to Moses. It's available now, and it's available to us, and we're studying it now. What's also really interesting is, in about 10 years, the Holy Spirit is going to come to John and say, I got news, pack your suitcase, you're going to pass. And that's going to be because of persecution, and it's going to be a very horrible thing for John to experience. It's going to be horrible for his flock in Ephesus. Their pastor is going to be leaving, is going to be in exile. Spoiler alert, he's going to come back to Ephesus. Anyway, they don't know that, and he leaves. And what happens while he's on Patmos? He's given a vision, and he writes the epilogue for Scripture. He writes the prologue, these 18 verses, and then the Spirit says, I'm going to give you a vision, and you're going to write. And the prologue to the epilogue says, right out of the shoot, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the epilogue of all scripture written by the Apostle John, the last words of Jesus that he records in scripture are, Jesus says, yes, I am coming. And John responds, come, Lord Jesus. And that's where we end today. He has come. He always has been coming. He came. A light in the darkness. And John has prepared us to understand in a new way something that could never have been revealed until John wrote it. Who he is. Let's pray. Father, how we love and how we're grateful for your apostle John and how we're grateful that always since you brought light into the darkness you've been revealing yourself to us. May we see and hear you and love you and listen and ask questions and talk about you. And may these blessings that you are sending through us into the world to bring light, to dispel the darkness. May they be true because they are based on